Hello, I'm Jen Waldo. Welcome to the first installment of my new novel, Snooping Caprock. A mid-sized North Texas town, Caprock is the setting for many of my novels. This story centers around Sandra Furlow, who has let a single nightmarish event define her. She combats her insecurities by being bold and, at times, abrasive. Her social life consists of the people at work and the support groups she attends regularly. In this first installment, we meet Sandra and two of her support groups. I hope you enjoy this reading from Snooping Caprock. During the break, several of us slipped through the side door and trooped to the sidewalk across the street. With the park behind us, we huddle under the streetlight, dig cigarettes from pockets and purses, and light up. The small meeting room of the Caprock Community Center, the CCC, hosts a different support group four weeknights out of five. Tonight's group is called Possession Obsession. Who's going to the game? Pete asks, aiming a ring upward. Caprock's two high school football teams are playing each other Saturday afternoon, an annual rivalry that gets the whole town worked up. The reason Pete's part of this group is that he's a compulsive buyer of power tools. In the last two years, he spent $25,000 on chainsaws, rotary saws, drills, grinders, power washers, useful items for someone who has a need, but he's an accountant who lives in an apartment. The tools, still in boxes, take up most of his living space. Several people in the group think this phase was triggered by the death of his fiancée, Margaret. I'm undecided. From what I've seen in grief, Thursday's group, he's recovering nicely. He's young. It's been two years, and he claims he's ready to start dating again. So why the power tools? Can't. Gotta work, Karen replies, brushing a few brown strands from her face. She directs the question to me. Sandra, are you going? Karen manages a small bar on Wilbur Road. Her issue is shoplifting. She steals jewelry and scarves and, well, pretty much anything that'll fit into a coat pocket or her oversized purse. I'm undecided, I tell her. You guys see the story in the paper about that house full of immigrants? Donald asks. His attempts at conversation always sound like a recap of the evening news. I've been a member of this group for over five years, and I have no idea why Donald's here. Yeah, I say, releasing a shallow puff. 150 people in that tiny house. Difficult to imagine. I'm noticeably smaller than the others. From a distance, I'd appear to be a child. Ordinarily, I don't smoke but I don't want to be counted among the non-smokers who are boring and judgmental, make sour faces and wave their arms to clear the air when we return after the break. Also, since this group isn't about tobacco, smoking is the vice of choice. Tomorrow evening's group is for nicotine addiction, so no one will smoke, but tipping flasks into coffee cups is common practice. This particular group is the first one I joined. I began attending on the advice of my then-therapist, Dr. Miley, who, when he thought I was using my ceramic bunny collection as a substitute for relationships, recommended I meet others with similar obsessions. It's a beautiful fall evening. All that's left of the day's sun is a thin pink line on the western edge of the sky. A slight breeze carries our smoke upward and away, and the streetlight overhead frames us in a rosy circle. Behind us, the dry leaves gently click against each other. What's that? Bill asks, you hear that? Bill's required by law to attend drug and alcohol abuse meetings at the CCC. He attends this group because he's dating Karen, and that's just fine with the rest of us. We get quiet and listen. Yes, there's a definite sound, a rhythmic coming from the park. What is it? Donald asks. 
We all turn and peer into the murky shadows. Everything in the park is gray and shifting. And between the silhouettes of the trees, two gigantic forms take shape. Is that what I think it is? Karen's voice has gone wispy like verbal smoke. If you're thinking elephants, that's what it looks like to me, too. This from Pete. What do we do? I ask. What are they doing here? Bill wonders. Are they aggressive? Karen asks. We're all whispering. I've heard they can be, Donald says. Shouldn't we call somebody? Bill asks. Do you think it's Geraldine and Thomas? Oh, that kind of makes sense. Thomas and Geraldine are the elephants from the Caprock Zoo. But the zoo's on the other side of town. It couldn't be, Pete says. They never could have made it this far without being noticed. Karen extracts her phone from her pocket and lifts it toward the animals. No, you'll draw their attention. I'm shrieking and whispering at the same time. She presses the button and the flash flashes. Sure enough, the elephants turn their broad faces towards us. We emit panic squeaks, stomp out our cigarettes, and race across the street to the safety of the CCC. Bill and I look back through the crack of the closing metal door. The elephants have turned their attention back to the trees. Karen sends the picture to her friend, and by friend I mean arresting officer, at the police station, and they contact the zoo. Proudly and defiantly emitting the odor of cigarettes and buzzing with the excitement that comes from seeing elephants in an unexpected place, we rejoin the three non-smoking members in the bright meeting room. Settling into our places in the circle of chairs, we take up where we left off. Maybe Pete's tool fetish has nothing to do with Margaret dying, I say. Maybe deep down he doesn't want to be an accountant. Maybe he wants to be a lumberjack or a builder. This insightful comment carries no impact, as it's at least the hundredth time I've voiced it. But I'll persist because I'm right. Pete needs to explore his tool-using side. No, Pete's problem stems from Margaret's death. Stubbornly romantic, Joan hangs on to the opinion that Pete's trying to mend his broken heart through making inappropriate purchases. Contentment rests on Pete's face as we discuss his issue. He likes that we're all so invested in his situation. And shame on the rest of us for using his problem to keep a spotlight off our own. We haven't addressed Joan's online buying or Karen's shoplifting in weeks. And, like I said, we've never even discussed why Donald's here. Donald, don't you think it's time you tell us what brought you to us? I ask. We don't have a designated leader, but sometimes when the discussion is stalled, I try to move things along. I'm not ready yet, he replies, wrapping his arms across his chest, a symbolic gesture that we're all familiar with. I can't force him, so I turn to Karen, who's willing to do her part. I resisted temptation last weekend, she tells us. I was in Kirkland's, and there was only one clerk in the whole store, and she was working the register. I could have taken anything out of there, but instead I kept my hands in my pockets and just walked away. Her eyes are sparkling. Her cheeks are pink. Her voice has gone high and breathy. Looks like somebody's experiencing a bit of an adrenaline surge. Ha! Bill, her boyfriend, knows her well. Tell us another one. Am I that easy to read? She asks, feigning shame. What'd you take? This from me. She pulls a delicate silver frame from her purse. Oh, Karen, what are we going to do with you? I refuse to tell her how lovely it is or how much I'd like it for my own. We spend the rest of the time talking about impulse control. We say the right things, but none of us believes we'll put into practice what we discuss in group. When we let out an hour later, two big trucks idle over in the park, right up beneath the trees. Their bright lights cast long shadows through the whole area. Three police cars hang back. People in coveralls form a disorganized circle. 
A stocky round woman seems to be in charge. She herds the people who herd the elephants. They'll never get them out of there just by asking politely, Donald says. What do you know about motivating elephants? Pete asks. They need to drug them. This from Bill, who thinks drugs are the answer to every problem. They turn out to be Geraldine and Thomas, our zoo elephants. It's speculated that they left the zoo after its 6 o'clock closing time, passed through three miles of residential and commercial districts, and stopped to munch at Henderson Park, where we reported seeing them at around 8.15. Also to be noted, their snacking destroyed some of the oldest trees in the panhandle. How did they get so far, during a busy traffic time, without being noticed? It's a mystery. I've been curious about Donald ever since I joined the group. He was a member when I first joined, and, according to several others, he was part of the original group, which means he's been coming for seven years. Of the ones who are with the group from its inception, only two remain, Donald and Mabel Larkin. While the others watch the people from the zoo try to load the elephants, I see Mabel heading toward the parking lot. I race after her, calling her name. She turns and, seeing it's me, waits beside her Lexus. You've been with the group since the beginning, right? I ask. She nods. She's an intimidating presence in our circle. Fifty, professionally streaked hair, eyebrows plucked to the thinnest arcs possible, and yoga lean. She looks down on those of us who go outside during break. She's in the group because she needs every possession to be the latest and the best. This is an expensive neurosis. A new car every year, a new wardrobe every season, new skin products, and new nails monthly. She can afford it because she's single, childless, and a realtor. What's the deal with Donald? I invite her to confide. None of us knows why he's here, and we can't help him if we don't understand him. I feel stupid even saying it. We all know we're not helping anybody. You know it's against the rules to talk about another member behind his back. She fidgets and looks behind me like she wishes someone would come rescue her. He never actually said, did he? I move into her space. I can be pushy. Back in the beginning, when the group was just getting started, why did he say he was joining? I refuse to divulge, she says. She presses her remote and her car wakes up with a beep beep. You have no more idea why he's here than the rest of us, I tell her. She slides into the driver's seat, closes the door with me standing right there, starts the engine and drives away. I get back at her by yelping and hopping around, pretending she ran over my foot. She slows, but doesn't buy it. As I'm turning toward my car, a first-generation CRV, Donald separates from the cluster over by the park and crosses the street. He walks like he's hunched against the cold, but it's not cold out here at all. His head's angled downward as he moves quickly toward the parking lot. I have no idea where he lives, what he does for a living, whether he's married or has children. He's around 40 and a little overweight. His pinched O's and drawn-out R's indicate that he's from somewhere else and that in itself is an anomaly. What would draw a person here? Who chooses to live in Caprock? When he's settled behind the wheel of his little truck, I turn my key and watch to see which direction he goes when he exits the lot. It's the same direction I'm going. I keep a distance as we turn onto Jackson, heading south. He turns west on Simmons and west again on Lovell. I pass the turn off to my house. Five minutes later, he turns into one of the many neighborhoods that branch off Lovell. I hang back, switch off my lights, and creep forth. He pulls into a driveway, and I roll to a stop at the curb four houses away. His headlights disappear on the far side of the house. A minute later, the lights come on in the front windows, and I see his outline as he moves around inside. I get out of my car and go to investigate. Lack of window treatments tells me there's no woman in the picture. The bare glass invites me to look in. 
The first window is a dining room, which holds a table and chairs, not a particularly nice set, probably handed down from middle-class parents. Feeling exposed at the front of the house, I circle the corner and take up position at the side window. From this angle, the kitchen and living room are visible. Donald putters in the kitchen, gathering things for a snack. He removes a bag of popcorn from the pantry, puts it in the microwave, lifts a beer from the fridge, and moves into the living room where he turns on the television. He sips his beer and watches the news, standing in front of the TV until the microwave pings. Retrieving his snack, he returns to the living room and relaxes in the recliner. He digs the popcorn from the bag and pokes it through his lips with greasy fingers. He tilts the beer into his mouth from the can. He's got to be the most boring person in town. This spy quest isn't telling me anything about what brought him to the group. The house is furnished unremarkably. There are no pictures on the walls, no mementos placed on the counters or shelves. As far as possession obsession goes, I see no sign of hoarding or collections that are out of control. It doesn't look like he's living an extravagant lifestyle. Continuing to the back, I open the fence, which splits the night with a startling... <clears throat> I recoil, hunch down, and hold my position, waiting to see if the noise was loud enough to draw his attention. After several seconds, I step into the backyard. There's a six-foot fence around the perimeter, and two large trees perfectly centered into two halves. A picnic table rests under one of the trees. A barbecue is an orb beneath its cover. Beneath the other tree is a lawn chair. What a pleasant back area. I peer through all the rear windows, getting different views of the living room and scanning a spare room that's used for storage. Here I pause. A weak fan of light illuminates, casting geometric shadows. What does he value enough to save? A couple of file cabinets, an old computer, a mattress that looks like it's in pretty good shape, a large mirror that's propped, not hung. There's no excess, nothing abnormal. It's stuff anybody would stick in a room. Moving on. The fogged window must be the bathroom, and the one with blinds that keep me from seeing in is his bedroom. I return to my car. Donald is as big a mystery as ever. This little excursion gave me no clues about where he came from, what he does, or what issues brought him to us. One thing I do know is that the only reason someone would lead such a dull life is because he doesn't want to draw attention, which means he's running from something. Maybe he's a wanted felon and he moved to Caprock to take cover in the land of the ordinary. Maybe he's in witness protection and was forced to come here. Or he used to be a wealthy man consumed by his possessions, which best explains his presence in our group. But when he lost his wife due to his shallow lifestyle, he mended his ways and came to this colorless corner of the world as a penance. I'll figure it out. I always do. I drive home. I live in a neighborhood similar to Donald's, two intersections back the way we came on level. After putting my car in the garage, I take a detour through the backyard. That picnic table beneath Donald's tree made the whole area seem cozy and inviting. A picnic table would look good under my tree. Also, he had two trees and I only have one, an elm. A second tree might be nice out here. I go inside. Donald's snack made me hungry for popcorn, so I too pop a bag. And come to think of it, a beer sounds nice. Gathering my feast, I go into the living room, settle into my cushiony chair, and turn on the news. The following morning, as I get ready for work, I listen to the local news. It turns out that Tansy Carlin, a classmate of mine, is the zookeeper whose job it was to secure the elephant's area. In high school, she was a moon-faced C student, a pale girl whose constant smile was rooted in anxiety. She never made an enemy, but she had no friends either. It's not surprising that she ended up working with smelly animals. Though I didn't particularly care for her when we were younger, her current predicament stirs my compassion. 
Poor thing, not a lot going for her to begin with, and now the whole town's mad at her. Initially, there was a scramble to get hold of the zoo's manager, Hector Vasquez, but he left for vacation two days ago, which means that, for the moment at least, Tansy's in charge. I bet she feels awful. Another mystery solved is how the elephants could have made it across town without being seen. They didn't. Apparently, they were seen all over the place. Jaws dropped in amazement as the massive beasts lumbered through the intersection at Paramount and Timmins, across the Walmart and Sam's parking lots, up and down the residential streets behind the Knapp Cinema. Pictures were taken. Traffic stopped. People called friends. But no one called the police or animal control because they assumed someone else would do it. Caprock's motto is, Good people, good attitudes, good sense. As far as capturing the spirit of our town, it's weak. Maybe at the next council meeting, I'll propose a new one. If I don't do it, someone else will. I work in the Carter Building, a medical office block on the west side of town located between the Baptist Hospital and the Graves Elderly Care Pavilion. As a receptionist in a dermatologist's office, I spend my days answering the phone, booking appointments, and directing traffic between the waiting area and treatment rooms. The job pays well, and it doesn't draw my concentration away from important things, so it suits me. On the other hand, it's not pleasant when people come wave their oozing or flaking skin disasters at me. I enter the garage, circle to the third level, and park next to my friend, Janine, a nurse in the ENT office next to ours. We wave happy greetings, get out of our cars, and head toward the third floor entrance to the building. Both of us carry small duffels that hold our walking shoes, lunches, and other paraphernalia that might be needed throughout the day. You hear about that stupid woman who let the elephants loose? Janine asks. Physically, she and I are similar, blonde and on the short side, though I'm shorter. But she's overweight, which makes her movements slow and heavy. Come to think of it, elephant-like, whereas I'm skinny and fast. It's not like she did it on purpose, I say. They're going to fire her for sure, she replies. This is sad. What kind of world do we live in where our livelihoods are extinguished because of a single mistake? We all have times when we're not paying attention. Also, I don't like the way Janine's judging Tansy before all the facts are in. The zoo probably employs many people besides Tansy. She may not be at fault. What group did you go to last night? She asks. Possession obsession. Tell me the truth, she says. Have any of those groups ever helped you in any way? At 34, Janine's four years older than I am. She's been married twice, no children, and is currently single. She could benefit from a support group. What did you do last night? I ignore her question to ask one of my own as we head toward our offices. First thing in the mornings, the hall always smells of ammonia. Today, there's a faint undercurrent of scorched sugar. I drank a glass of wine, ate Chinese takeout, then watched four sitcoms while I drank another glass of wine and munched on potato chips. Here in Caprock, you have to look for entertainment. It sure as hell doesn't come looking for you as you sit in front of your TV consuming alcohol and junk food. If joining a group isn't your thing, I say, you could join a bowling league. It's depressing to think of her sitting alone night after night. Or you could sing in the church choir. Or, hey, I heard they're starting a square dancing club at the CCC on Thursday nights right down the hall from grief. We're standing in the hallway outside our perspective doors, hands on knobs, finishing the conversation before entering our different offices. What makes you think I'm interested in any of those things, she asks. Those are all things women do when they're desperate to meet a man, and I'm definitely not that. She gives a bitter chuckle. See you at lunch, I tell her. She and I, two women from four and two from two, meet on the stairs every day at noon and spend half an hour walking up and down. Exercise is important. I open the door and enter my workday domain. A wall of acrid smoke hits me, burning my eyes. 
I fly across the waiting room, past the treatment rooms, and into the break room at the end of the hall. Dr. Ham stands in front of the open microwave, gazing dejectedly in. Billows waft and rise. I approach and peer around his shoulder. Something gooey exploded. What am I looking at? I ask. A cinnamon roll, he says. Ham is a tall man, almost 60. His hair used to be vivid orange, but he's faded over the years so that now he's mostly no color at all. Something's not right about his appearance. His face and shirt are damp. Did he wash up in the break room sink? His hair is pressed flat on one side and his shirt is wrinkled, like it's been folded, not hung. And underneath the smoke, there's the musky scent of morning breath. Did you sleep here last night? I ask him. I don't want to talk about it, he tells me. You're a wealthy man, I say. If Millie kicks you out of the house, get a hotel room. This is no place for sleeping. I feel comfortable making his business my business. He was my Sunday school teacher during my middle school years, and I've worked for him since I left UT. Millie, his wife, is addicted to drama. She's been known to pull some pretty crazy stunts to get her husband's attention. If her life is stress-free for too long, she becomes restless and belligerent. It's the kind of thing there ought to be a support group for. Ah, now, he says, disappearing through the door, seeking refuge in his office, leaving me to deal with a burnt, sticky mess. The morning progresses as expected. Hazel, Ham's assistant, comes in late, rushes through the door, and heads to the back, slinging a quick good morning in my direction. She's seemed distracted lately. I'll catch up with her later. I organize biopsy orders, take insurance information, pull and file patients' records. At 9.30, Millie shows up dripping diamonds and gold and demanding to see her husband. Right now, she says when I tell her he's with a patient. She had a facelift last year. Dr. Arcus up on five did a good job. She looks smooth, but not fake or overly taut. I scurry back, give a double tap on the examination room door, and announce that the doctor's wife is here. I want to like Millie, but she's like an intense yipping dog, behaving badly and expecting praise for it. They spend 30 minutes working things out in his office, setting the morning's schedule back, which causes the patients to grumble. When Millie walks out, she sends me a mean look. I remind myself that she's troubled. Bipolar, a couple of blotched suicide attempts, three stints in the psych ward. I take a breath and move on. At noon on the stairs, the first part of the conversation is focused on the elephants. Then it moves on to marriage and kids. For the most part, I don't have anything to contribute, so I march silently along, letting their words flow past. I always have a lot on my mind, and I use the time while they gab to catch up on my thoughts. Today, I'm concerned about poor Tansy Carlin and how much trouble she must be in. And I recall that picture frame that Karen showed us last night and how much I liked it. Also, I find myself once again thinking about Donald, which makes me wonder if I'm becoming obsessed. I give the possibility a few minutes of mental scrutiny, then decide that no, following home last night wasn't unreasonable. I just want to know why he's in the group. That's all. As usual, when there's no more bragging about kids or complaining about husbands to be done, the women turn their attention to me. You seen anybody, Sandra? As if I suddenly started dating since yesterday. Eh, is all the response I can muster. I bet you're meeting some interesting men in those groups of yours. Oh, she can't take those guys seriously. The only reason for them to be there is that they're crazy. Well, what man isn't crazy? You make a good point. On the upside, she'd know right from the start that he's got issues, so no waiting for the craziness to manifest. I lift my hand to my forehead, running my finger along the jagged scar about an inch into my hairline, a brick to the head ten years ago. My work friends are all older than me. Between the five of them, there are eight kids. 
they've all been divorced and remarried at least once. Marriage and having babies is what they're all about. They're nice women, and I like them, but sometimes, like now, when they're dissecting my life in a critical and concentrated way, it makes me feel claustrophobic, like they're trying to stuff me into a place where I won't fit. So I do what I always do when they start in on me. I sing Stars and Stripes in my head, an inspiring tune with a snappy rhythm that makes it good to march to. Soon, I'm ahead of them by several steps, then an entire flight. Hey, Sandra, you're leaving us behind. See you guys later, I call over my shoulder. I hope to have time for a quick talk with Hazel before the afternoon appointments get started, but once again, she rushes in with no time to spare. While we have little in common, she's much older, widowed years ago, and lives with her elderly father. We like each other and laugh at the same things. It occurs to me that we haven't had a conversation in a week, which is unusual. Something's going on with her. During the afternoon, a plan niggles, and at five o'clock when it's time to take the left that'll get me home, I slip into the middle lane and go straight to the mall, to Kirkland's. There's always a spicy smell in Kirkland's, cinnamon and ginger with a hint of jasmine. Instrumental arrangements of hits from the 80s drift peacefully from corners and cubbies. The only employee in the store is swishing a feather duster over by the cash register. An eye-catching picture of an arrogant rooster hangs high on the wall. Propped beneath it are 10 prints of the same picture, mass-produced art, the definition of Kirkland's. Floor to ceiling, back to front, Colorful throw pillows, luxuriously soft lap blankets, baskets, statues, lamps, vases, candles. There's so much home decor in here that it's overwhelming. I stroll around until I find the picture frames like the one Karen stole a few days ago. In straight rows, all adjusted to the same angle, they form a regiment of rectangles on the broad shelf. I pick up one of the front ones, weigh it in my hand, run my finger along the reflective silver. If I read Karen correctly, stealing is exhilarating. I slip the frame into my jacket pocket and wait for the thrill, but nothing happens. It rests there, a weight at my side. I move around the store, occasionally patting the solid object in my pocket. I take it out, look at it, drop it back in. I like it a little less than when Karen showed it to us. Coming to a decision, I head toward the entrance. The nearer I get, the more nervous I become. My stomach clenches. I pass by the clerk, who's hunched over sorting the contents of a couple of bins. The blood rushes to my face. When I get to the exit, I stop. Do I or don't I? I look all around. No one is looking at me. No one cares. My heart is doing a frenzied dance as I step out of the store and into the mall. As I move away, my breathing is shallow. I feel combustible and frightened and so excited my skin feels tight. The adrenaline rush stays with me as I go to the car, as I turn from the parking lot, as I'm stopped at a traffic light. It doesn't lose its intensity until I'm almost home. So now I know. When I'm stopped at the last intersection before the turn to my house, my phone rings. It's my mother. Hey, Mom, I answer. We're taking a little trip, she tells me. Since they both retired two years ago, Mom and Dad have made a hobby out of clamoring in and out of their RV. They seem desperate to go places. Where to this time, I ask. Kentucky. We've always wanted to see Kentucky. And if you can't be impulsive when you're our age... This trailing off sentence has become a refrain with her. If you can't be foolish when you're our age, if you can't be extravagant when you're our age, if you can't be cantankerous, outspoken, intolerant. Being over 60 is an acceptable excuse for all kinds of objectionable behavior. I'll come in and feed Edgar and water your plants. Edgar's their cat. Actually, we were wondering if maybe it wouldn't be a good idea for you to just take them to your place. What? 
You're giving me your cat and plants? Well, we're thinking about extending the trip, going from Kentucky to the East Coast and down through Florida. We might winter there. Texas women are cautious when it comes to voicing absolutes. When she says might, she means definitely. When they got the call from the hospital in Austin, they flew to my bedside, more frightened than they'd ever been. Devastated and pale, they were both in tears at the sight of their little girl, whom they'd showered with only good things, a purple raw mass of swollen flesh. Raped, fractured ribs, broken jaw, concussion, two black eyes, a broken nose. It was a year before I was brave enough to drive anywhere by myself. Two years before I could sleep without three locks on my bedroom door and the light on. The monster was never caught, but that's not what this, right here on the phone with my mom, is about. It's about me leading a life that's less than what they wanted for their feisty daughter. I let one brutal, unspeakable, unforgivable incident, an interval of half an hour, define me. I went from being good at everything to being good at nothing. I wasn't strong. I never went back to school. I'll never give them grandbabies. And because I've disappointed them, I owe them. And if that means taking in a smelly, shedding 12-year-old cat, that's what I'll do. When are you leaving? I ask. Tomorrow morning, she replies, I'll put Edgar in his carrier and his food and the plants all right inside the front door, ready for you to pick up. You can't wait until I get there to leave? I can be there by 6.30. I can get up at 6, drive over there, load it all up, bring it home, and have it all unloaded by 7. I'll get Edgar settled, shower and dress, and get to work on time. We're leaving at 4, she tells me. What rules are they following? Dad likes to get an early start, but 4 a.m. is ridiculous. You can come by this evening if you want. I've got group. I can come by after around 9.30 if you like. Oh, well, we'll be in bed by then. Tight and abrupt, she's determined not to voice her feelings about my groups. Okay, I say, whatever you want to do. Thanks, Sandra. No problem. Unlike last night's group, where we just chime in, Smokers has a designated facilitator. The position alternates on a monthly basis, and this is Amy's last night to lead. She's late. Let's start with our accountability time, she says after she's settled in. I'll go first. I got a new car on Saturday, and I made a pact with myself that I'm not going to smoke in it. So when I'm driving and I want a cigarette, I force myself to pull over and get out. In a symbol of support, we hold our lighters aloft and flick. Tell me, though, how much time are you actually spending on the side of the road, Lurlene asks. Lurlene seems to think that speaking her mind about every little thing is an admirable asset, but sometimes she just seems mean. How many times has this made you late somewhere? The important thing is that I'm making it inconvenient, Amy says. It's like I'm punishing myself for every cigarette. You were ten minutes late, Lurlene points out, and that's exactly the amount of time it takes to pull off the road, get out, and have a smoke. It's not just yourself you're punishing, you're punishing everybody else, too. There's no arguing with this. Amy shrugs in defeat and gestures at Wendell, sitting next to her, that it's his time to share. The stories are all similar. They want to smoke. They fight it until they can't fight it anymore. Then they feel bad because they're weak. I share the same story I tell every week, only the setting's always different. I was at the mall, and all I needed was a puff, I say, so I went into a bathroom stall, took a drag, and flushed it down. When I was on my way out, a woman who was on the way in said the place smelled like someone had been smoking in there. She gave me a look, and I was ashamed. Sometimes when I tell the story, it takes place at a wedding, or here at the CCC, or at the hospital. Do these people honestly believe I've snuck smokes in every public restroom in town? These groups are so important to me that I lie about what I do and who I am in order to be part of them. 
I was in counseling for years, and I never received the satisfaction I've found with my groups. I like how these people want to be a certain way but can't seem to make it happen. I understand why they fool themselves and tell themselves they're fooling others. When one of them struggles, I struggle. When someone falls off whatever wagon they're on, I suffer the failure right along with them. And in grief, when a person who's known loss tells how they left for the first time in months and how that laughter made them feel sad or guilty or relieved, I feel sadness or guilt or relief too. Sometimes it seems like the only time I feel anything is through someone else. Also, while the support of one person is pleasant, the support of many is a powerful, suffusing force. In smokers, when we lift our lighters, the mutual encouragement warms, penetrates, and lasts. Attendance may not cause anyone to actually stop smoking, but it's nice being around others who have a full grasp of the matter. And I'm not the only overlap. Pete's in possessions and grief. Bill's in possessions and addiction. Lurleen's in smokers and grief. Maria's in grief and addiction. Do you think it's time to revisit the electronic cigarette issue? Amy asks. Her suggestion is met with a disapproving silence. A couple of years ago, we voted not to support the e-cigarette trend because it makes smoking less offensive, and one of the main deterrents to smoking is mortification. Also, it's not just a societal issue, it's a health issue, and e-cigarettes aren't any less deadly than real ones. We all look at her as if she's crazy. She continues, All I mean is, I could have an e-cig in my new car, and I wouldn't have to be late everywhere. Why don't we all think about it? I'll do some research, and we'll deal with it at next week's meeting, I ask. As next week's facilitator, the decision whether or not to address the issue will be up to me, and my primary goal will be to do what's best for the group, which means focusing on the question. Are e-cigarettes an effective tool in fighting nicotine addiction? I'll definitely study the subject before the next meeting. At break, instead of going outside and lighting up, we hang around the coffee table. The spiking of the coffee started with Wade, a backslider who, before he quit coming a couple of years ago, brought a flask and shared. Traditionally, the one to supply the alcohol is the one who's facilitating. This tippling must be done subtly because no alcohol is allowed on the premises. We make a circle around the big coffee maker and hold our cups toward Amy, who pours a liberal amount into each. As one, we raise our cups in toast, sip, and sigh in pleasure. Tonight, our conversation turns towards the elephants. I'm a bit of a celebrity because I saw them in the park. What'd they look like over there in the trees? Were you scared? They looked pretty much the same as they do in the zoo, only you're looking square at them instead of down, I tell them, and they were close with no barrier, which was disconcerting. Wild animals should be in a zoo, not wandering around free, Marv says. He never thinks about the words that come out of his mouth. That zookeeper's going to lose her job for sure, Eve says. Something's not right about this whole thing, I respond. In order for those elephants to get out, they had to escape two enclosures, theirs and the zoo's. One door accidentally left unlocked, I can believe. But two? You think this was deliberate, not carelessness? Amy's question is offered tentatively. She's feeling timid because of the group's dubious reaction to her e-cigarette suggestion. I think the question needs to be addressed. But what would the motive be? Lurlene asks. Maybe it was a prank. This from Wendell, who prefers to view the world from a humorous angle. Also, I say, how convenient is it that the manager went on vacation right before this happened? Maybe it's some disgruntled person's form of protest. It's a mystery, all right. We should drive on over there and check it out, I say. So we end group early and plan to meet in the zoo parking lot in half an hour, which gives everybody enough time to have a cigarette, even if it means pulling to the side of the road and getting out. 
The zoo is located in the middle of Neville Meyer Park, Caprock's largest recreational area. As I drive through the winding road, my headlights snag the outlines of swings, seesaws, a massive climbing frame, picnic tables, tennis courts, even the high diving platform of the training pool. In this flat, dry part of the country, elm trees are the low-maintenance choice for a park. Tall, with full crowns and skinny straight trunks, their leaves will be on the ground in two weeks. I park in the shadow of the huge elm on the far end of the parking lot. It's a clear night, but the crescent moon is distant and small. Wendell's truck pulls up next to me, and Lurleen's mini pulls up on the other side of him. Getting out, I turn on my flashlight and scan the area. The two of them join me as Eve's Toyota rolls in next to my CRV. She gets out of her car and comes to stand next to us on the sidewalk. All three of them smell heavily of cigarette smoke. There's a 12-foot fence around the entire zoo. It's a thick barrier, composed of concrete blocks, painted pale yellow, and decorated with monkeys, elephants, and bears, all wearing smiles not found in nature. The main entrance is wide, with an arching sign over it that reads, Caprock Zoo. We stroll in that direction. A solid metal gate is pulled across and padlocked at the side. They didn't get out this way, Eve says, yanking on the lock a little bit, testing it. There's got to be a service entrance in back, Wendell comments. Out of seven people in the group who said they'd meet us here, only four have shown up. We move back to where we're parked. The side of the fence, perpendicular to the sidewalk, disappears into darkness. I shine my light along the perimeter. Am I the only one who has a flashlight? I ask. Looks like it, Lurleen replies. A pale line indicates a trail paralleling the fence. My beam plays across the trunks of the trees, casting weird shadows. A breeze wafts through the branches, causing the dry leaves to click and rattle. We're going to have to take this path around, I tell them. It looks scary, Lurleen says. This is something 12-year-old boys would do. Eve said she wanted to be here, but now she's complaining. Shouldn't we let someone else figure this out? If everybody waits for someone else to do a thing, nothing ever gets done, I say, impatient with the inaction of the people of this town. Except for my almost two years at UT, I've lived here all my life. Are the people in other places as inert as the people here? If it weren't for me getting these folks off their backsides, they wouldn't have any adventures at all. I step onto the path. They follow. We're tense. Every little noise and gust makes us jump. There are all kinds of animal sounds coming from the other side of the tall fence. Quacks and growls, snuffles and screeches. They're all in cages, Lurleen attempts to reassure herself. The fence turns the corner. Back here, there are fewer trees, quite a few weeds, and strewn beer cans and bottles. We continue until we come to a double-wide wooden gate. It's secured in the center by a padlock on a chain that's hooked through the two handles of the gates. I shine my light on the lock and chain, which looks to be in good shape. No marks or scratches indicate that it's been tampered with. I shine my weak beam at the ground. The earth is hard and dry, but not so solidly packed that it doesn't show the heavy tire tracks formed when the trucks holding Geraldine and Thomas backed up here stopped and lowered ramps. No clue here, Eve decides. This lock is solid, Wendell says. Whoever did it, they had a key. But does that mean it was Tansy Carlin? I ask. There's got to be more than one key. A screech comes from the other side of the gate. We all freeze. Then an ah! sounds directly above our heads. We look up. A monkey is perched on top of the fence. It bares its teeth, raises its hand, and throws something at us. Whatever was thrown makes a wet plopping sound when it lands at Lurleen's feet. 
Another monkey pops up beside the first one. Run! This from Eve, who's already started running. We trip over each other getting out of there. The sound of screeching monkeys follows us. We're out of breath when we come to a stop at our cars. What the hell? Lurleen's not the only one who's freaked out. We stand in a huddle, arms wrapped protectively around our midsections. Shouldn't those monkeys be in cages? Eve is indignant, as though the monkeys got out specifically to torment her. Somebody should call somebody, is Wendell's wise contribution. I pull out my phone and poke 911. Caprock Police Department. I recognize Carol's voice. Carol is a friend from addiction who, for a short period of time a couple of years ago, became too fond of Xanax. Please state the nature of your emergency. Monkeys are out of their cages at the zoo, I say. Sandra, is that you? What are you doing at the zoo? Uh Uh-oh. It never occurred to me that I'd get hold of someone who'd know me, though I should have realized. Three macaques skip across the top of the fence. Just checking on things, I tell her. The monkeys are out, and they're racing all over the place. A unit will be there in five minutes, she says. Stay where you are until they arrive. Uh, yeah, that's not going to happen. I disconnect and say, the police will be here in five minutes. The Caprock police are notoriously difficult. Though their job is handling disturbances, they're resentful when they're disturbed. Depending on who answers the call, they can be accusatory, passive-aggressive, sarcastic, or deliberately slow. Expediently, we get in our cars, reverse, and drive from the lot. This concludes the first segment of Snooping Caprock, in which Sandra spies on Donald and talks friends from the smokers group into going to the zoo at night. In the next reading, Sandra attends grief group and discovers a dead body in the wolf enclosure at the zoo.